This episode of Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused, sustainable pharmaceutical company accredited with both B Corp and a benefit corporation status. Chiesi is making global changes that benefits patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. Again, that's C-H-I-E-S-I.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Uh, happy early February to everyone. Uh, today's episode is so good. Uh, we're bringing back a OG topic that has had tons and tons of updates. So this is immunotherapy part two, and special guest Matt McKenzie discusses what we should know when these patients present to the ICU. What exactly is immunotherapy? How do CAR T cells work? What is CRS and ICANs? Is corticosteroid treatment harmful? What are some grading differences? What are some common adverse effects from our immune checkpoint inhibitors? The role of pharmacists in prevention and treatment, and so, so much more. So this builds from the original immunotherapy episode with Heather May. So this is an awesome, awesome one. Other big announcement. The March Madness bracket returns this year. So some may remember I did a, a critical care medication March Madness bracket in 2020, uh, times passed, and I thought this idea to needed to return. So no hints just yet on what the subject is, uh, but know that we are not talking specific medications. So the only, only thing you'll get for now, um, but not sure there will be an episode I release where you learn as much as this one. So sit back and relax. Unless you're driving, then don't do that because we're starting right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
very lucky to be joined by Matt McKenzie. Now, Matt is a critical care a nutrition support clinical pharmacy specialist at the University of Texas at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at MGM 485. Matt, thanks. How are you, man? I'm great. Excited to be here. How are you? I'm doing great. So I realized not only from your like Twitter handle, but also from your emails, you have a top tier initials. Like MGM is is platinum. Like mine is nap, for example, right? Which hey, hand up. Love a good nap, but but uh I feel like that's just a, a really great you got a great set of initials. So uh just had to point that out for the listeners here. We're off on a strong foot, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely definitely initials. I always send my emails, and I'm always waiting for someone to respond. And hi, MGM, nice to meet you. But it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. But no, it's it's uh, it definitely coincides with the the nice little casino there as well. So we are talking about it is titled immunotherapy part two because essentially, you know, Heather May joined initially to 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 do a brief kind of intro into what that world even was and a lot of that info was developing and all that kind of thing so Matt is gracious enough to come back and we'll still give kind of like a an overview of things but then really kind of update us as to where are we now what kind of guideline recommended treatments are there etc and then get excited because we have a mattress max story part two to to close the episode with but Matt starting out immunotherapy, what is it exactly? Like, what is this umbrella term reference? Because to me, right, when I think of cancer and its classic treatment, I don't think of immunotherapy. I think of immunosuppression. So what is immunotherapy? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, immunotherapy is very much what it sounds like. It's using your own immune system to fight cancer cells. And in layman's terms, this immunotherapy can help either boost or change how our immune system works uh, so it can actually target cancer cells. And for the sake of today's conversation, I know we'll be focusing a little bit more on checkpoint inhibitors and largely monoclonal antibodies, but also CAR T-cell therapy. But, you know, for all intensive purposes, immunotherapy is an umbrella term that does encompass other treatments as well, including but not nonspecific immunotherapies, oncolytic virus therapy, different T-cell therapies, but also cancer vaccines as well. Some examples that you may have run across in the hospital or even heard on commercials probably um, or read about are PD-1 or PDL one CTLA-4 pathway agents. And these are checkpoint inhibitors that are limited to, not limited to, uh, Dervalumab, Ipilimumab, Nivolumab, and Pembrolizumab. And I know that's a, that's a mouthful, so we'll get into that in a little bit. I think instead of defining like immunosuppression for what it is, a better term to think about it would be something like immunomodulating. And for instance, these medications I talked about, uh, most of them are PD-1 specific medication and PD-1 is a receptor involved in immune checkpoint signaling, specifically T-cell maintenance. Uh, typically this function as, functions as an off switch that keeps T-cells from attacking other cells in the body. Uh, however, when it binds to its ligand, PDL one it leaves the T-cells to leave other cells, it lets the T-cells leave other cells alone. Uh, however, some cancer cells express a large quantity of PDL one which helps them evade this immune attack. So monoclonal antibodies in general that target these PD-L1s or PD-1 can block this binding and boost our immune system against cancer cells, just as an example of uh, what you had asked about immunosuppression. 
thanks for kind of definitely filling because I did not know that it encompassed that wide a variety of terms. And I also tell me you're talking about a hemong topic without telling me you're talking about a hemong topic. We got a reference yeah. to a drug commercial, which is perfect. But but you see them like that's that's the thing is like I see them around, so it's not um you know you're not just um you know making a joke there. Now what type of what types of cancers? are immunotherapies kind of being used for me and maybe obviously if we're talking about the broad term of it I'm sure it'd be a lot of them but semi what we're talking about today you know I think initially it was ALL refractory b-cell cancer but I'm sure the indications have have gotten wider from then till now yeah for sure Uh, that's another good question as you know honestly it's one of the hardest topics to keep up with because every day it seems like there's new information or there's another type of cancer we're treating with immunotherapy. Um, but in general, the current list of FDA approved immunotherapies to treat certain types of cancer are vast. Um, there's probably almost 20 different types of cancers. I'll go through a couple of them, but a lot of them include B cell lymphoma, relapsed refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, bile duct cancers, bladder cancers, breast, cervical endometrial, colorectal, esophageal, head and neck cancers, Hodgkin's lymphomas, and the list goes on and on and on, but also include other hematologic malignancies like B-cell ALL, like you talked about, as well as relapsed refractory B-cell ALL. Um, But again, the, the list is vast and it continues to be expanded upon, it seems like, almost every month. You mentioned that it's hard to keep up with. Yeah, shout out to you all in the Hemonk ICU world. Not only do you, A, have to keep up with the ICU topics, but you then somehow have to keep up with, like, the Hemonk topics as well. Fill us in. Is there, like, a secret club where you all, like, share pronunciation tips and papers, or is it just every man for every man and woman for themselves? No, honestly, it's about coming up with abbreviations, learning from how the hemonc pharmacists say it, and making sure that we're not messing it up when we're saying it. But yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely practicing it over time to get better at it. So, as we describe, right, the chimeric antigen receptor T cell or CAR T cell therapy, and what it is and how it works. I think it'd be good if we think about it from like two different perspectives, right? Like in vitro or like the lab, like how do we even make this to have it be a treatment? And then in vivo or in the body, right? What does it do mechanistically to help treat, right? The the cancers that we're using it for. So starting out from like the lab perspective, what has to happen for CAR T cell therapy to arrive at the patient's bedside? Like what's that process from like the... The T cell, I guess, you could tell us where we go from there and, until, you know, we infuse it. Yeah, sure. I'll talk a little bit about like how we get it from the patient, how it's altered, how it's brought back to the patient, and then a little bit about, um, you know, the different types of CAR T's that we're potentially initiating in these patients. But in general, it all starts about identifying the perfect patient that can qualify for CAR T cell therapy, which is usually your relapsed refractory types of heme malignancy patients. Um, but this all starts with an apheresis nurse helping out with T-cell collection. So it's a leukophoresis process. The T-cells are separated through centrifugation, and then the rest of the blood is returned to the patient. Those T-cells are then sent off to the lab to be actually genetically engineered to express this CAR gene or chimeric antigen receptor. And that's the introduction of an inactive virus that is actually used to insert genes into the T-cell. These genes actually allow the CARs to come to the surface of the T-cells And then after they do that, they actually stay in the lab for further expansion of these CAR-expressing 
expressing T cells ex vivo over the next few days. Um, they're then shipped back to the hospital and then they're given at the bedside and fused back into the patient after conditioning chemotherapy, which makes space for the engineered T cells to grow and attack other cancer cells. And then CAR T cells travel to the sites of cancer and begin to recognize and attack cancer cells, which allow them to express the target protein recognized by the CAR. It's actually funny though, because, you know, this is such a, like a, a treatment of cure for a lot of patients. And, you know, you think it, it, would come in, you know, fancy bag or something, but really it's just, it looks like another, you know, pack of red blood cells, but it's a pack of CAR T cells and it's a million dollars, but it's, it's, you know, it's a curative process for them. And it's amazing how, how simple it actually looks like when it gets to the bedside. You, um, but there's actually, hold on, a, hold on a second, Matt, cause you read my mind in talking about, so it looks like a pack, like a thing of packed red blood cells. Like that's what it, cause I envisioned FFP yeah. when I, when I was thinking of it. So it looks like blood essentially. Yeah, it's like a diluted, like, red color that it comes to at the bedside. Um, but, yeah, it, it really doesn't look as expensive as it is. <laughs> okay, I interrupted. We had to, I had to clarify, so go, go ahead. You're good. But, yeah, these CAR-T cells, there's two main types of CAR-T cell ther- therapy modalities, and these are CD19 or BCMA-targeted um, CAR-T cells. And unlike conventional effector T cells, CAR-T cells can actually recognize antigens irrespective of MHC presentation, and nevertheless being limited to the recognition of surface-expressed structures. After binding of the CAR-T cells, the cells actually mediate their antitumoral effects through a perforin and granzyme axis to cause this lysis of antigen-positive tumor cells. And more specifically, CD19-targeted therapies, they're, more, most widely, they're the most widely used type of CAR T-cell therapy and are designed to target CD19, which is a protein that's actually expressed on the surface of certain types of cancer cells, which mainly include B-cell lymphomas and leukemias. And these approved therapies, there's four of them, and get ready for the names. So the one of the one of the brand names is Kimraya with the generic uh, Tisigan Lucil, and then t- Yescarta is the second one, which is Axicabdigene Philolacil or Axicel. There's Tacardis, which is Rexacabdigene Autolucil, and then lastly Brianzi, which is Lysocabdigene Maralucil. You know that's a mouthful. And then lastly, the, the second type is the VCMA-targeted CAR T-cell therapies, which is designed to target C-cell maturation antigens expressed specifically on uh, multiple myeloma cells. The two products that are available there are Abecma, which is Idacabdogene Viclacil, and Carvicti, which is Siltacabdogene Autolucil. Wow, that's... That was amazing. Okay, we have to ask. All right, I, I had to practice that. <laughs> what's what's your favorite? Not based on anything, but name alone out of those. And you can choose whether it's brand or generic name, whichever one you choose. Yeah, it's definitely the one that we use most commonly, which is Yescarta, and it's only because I can say it without having to look at the name and pronounce each syllable, and not have to worry about being wrong when I'm pronouncing it. But yeah, Axicabdigene Philolacil, the only one that really rolls off the tongue compared to the rest of them. I agree. My vote is the exact opposite. As somebody who doesn't have to say it, I picked the longest one, right, which is Lysocaptogene Marilusil. And I had to YouTube that a few times. How'd I do pronunciation-wise? Good, 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 good. I'm glad you practiced. <laughs> I love that lysos. They even shorten it to just lysocell. So the fact that it's so long, yeah. you shorten the generic name. Never heard of that before. So um, 
we have a much larger um, like use varieties of indications, much more available products. So obviously these are going to be used more. Um, there's some, you know, benefits that I was reading, right. That it's, you know, just an easier infusion. You're not coming back every single day for weeks or once a week for three to four, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to see this more. And if things go well, right. We're not seeing these patients in the ICU, right. It's, they might be monitoring, but you know, they're going to go without necessarily seeing us. Now they transfer to that ICU when adverse effects occur. So are there standard labs or medications that these patients will commonly get after like an immune-related adverse effect from this CAR T-cell treatment? Or is it really individualized because the symptoms can be so wide in a variety of them? Yeah, you know, we, we typically only see these patients when toxicities are more severe, specifically talking about us as critical care pharmacists when they come to the ICU. You know, in the post-CAR T-cell infusion period, we are doing a lot of standard labs, you know, your general CBC, CMP, coagulation panel, but also some inflammatory labs such as CRP and serum ferritin. And usually CRP actually normalizes before the onset of ICAMP, something we also actually look at. Specifically looking at, you know, what are bringing these patients to the ICU, what sort of things we also look at. And specifically when we're looking at cytokine release syndrome or CRS, um, we'll run also infectious workups, if not recently performed, such as blood and urine cultures, as well as a chest X-ray. If they haven't obtained one, we'll also get an echo at this time. Things such as like standard medications and other interventions that are included once they reach the ICU, if not before, or things for fever specifically. So like Tylenol or ibuprofen if it's not broken with Tylenol. Uh, broad spectrum antibiotics are another big one, plus or minus GCSF if the patient is continuously neutropenic as well. And then also um, fluid boluses as needed for hypotension on top of having CRS, vasopressors as needed once they hit the ICU. Um, and if not already on seizure prophylaxis, they typically are started on seizure prophylaxis with Keppra somewhere between 500 to 750 um, twice a day. And then lastly, also for fever, uh, they typically have a hypothermia blanket as well uh, available as well. And we'll get more into this as we continue on, but obviously our anti-immune effector cell therapies come into play here as well, which include tocilizumab, steroids, uh, and anakinra as well, depending on grading and treatment response. And then as far as ICANs go, typically with ICANs, we will get brain imaging as well. So MRI, but if but CT, if MRI is not feasible, stat EEG, a lumbar uh, diagnostic lumbar puncture, other causes of, you know, encephalopathy are suspected. And within that uh, lumbar puncture, we're running a meningitis encephalitis panel um, from the CSF if symptoms persist despite ICANs interventions that we've made. Some other standard medications that we usually do for ICANS patients include seizure prophylaxis for at least 30 days after their, their CAR T-cell therapies, um, even if EEG continues to be negative. And then again, our anti-immune effector cell therapies, um, such as the mainstay of steroids, tocilizumab, as well as anakinra. That is just as a lot and complicated as I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. And when you look through those guidelines, it, it can hit every single organ system, right? So it makes sense that you're going to mm-hmm. do all those specific things and really rule out stuff, right? You're starting antibiotics in case this is a, you know, they in septic shock, right? Which can present fever, hypotensions, you know, probably similarly. So that kind of makes mm-hmm. sense from a, from just a supportive care kind of perspective. Um, 
you know, one question that, you know, you talked about how these drugs work and their targets. And a lot of times if you look in guidelines or even review papers, you'll see biomarkers and labs like ordering IL-6 and things like that. So how, how essential are they? Like, I know they could probably be helpful, but I know most places, those specific kinds of, they don't, they don't get run in house, right? You're getting them back in a couple days. So how, how essential are, are like those kind of biomarkers to identification and stuff in, in the treatment of these patients? Yeah, that's a good question. And I know that we started the vast majority of, of the IC population started thinking more about IL-6, especially with the onset of COVID yep. and using tocilizumab in those patients. Um, but as far as biomarkers go for, for CAR T-cell patients, um, we still treat CRS and ICAN generally the same with, without biomarkers in general. We can draw IL-6 levels, but we know intuitively that they will be high, um, specifically relate because we know they'll be high based on the pathophysiology in general. Um, and hence why our treatments are largely centered around scoring systems that include signs, symptoms, as well as diagnostic fi- findings from the patients. I will say, though, that I'm not an expert in all the biomarkers associated with CRS and ICANS, um, and that at least at MD Anderson, I know that they are drawn sp- definitely for research purposes. Um, although we, we do technically, uh, we, we can run IL-6 levels in-house at MD Anderson, um, they do take up the 24 to 48 hours to return. Um, but in that time, your patient may have very well have already progressed multiple grades of CRS or ICANS. For, so from my perspective, I don't see that they really add a whole lot to the treatment plan when in reality, when they hit the ICU, your treatment plan is, you know, minutes to, minute to hours to, to days that you're needing um, effective therapies in place. Yeah, they come in, it's full court press. Lumbar punctures on the standard standard uh, cocktail coming in, right? That's that's definitely the the uh, VIP treatment, and that that is that's a good point about research. I didn't think about that. Where a lot of these centers are probably doing research, so they may be getting labs from that perspective. That's a really good thing. I, I'm glad you pointed that out. So let's move into those adverse effects that will bring them to the ICU and cytokine release syndrome or CRS. Is this the most common adverse effect that you see in these patients, or is this the one that just gets the most publicity? Yeah, I think that's another good question, because I think it's important to both highlight how often CRS actually does occur, and but also that other adverse drug events are also possible in this post-CAR T-cell infusion time period. But I'd say by and large, CRS is definitely the most common severe adverse drug event that can occur. Uh, In all the large landmark trials from the six approved CAR T cell products, um, the rate of any uh, CRS reaction ranges anywhere from 40 up to 95% of the time that they'll develop it with grade three reactions, which is typically, you know, your, your ICU admission reason um, making up to almost up to 25% in those patients, but it can occur from 1% all the way up to 25% in those trials. It's definitely ranging. And although there are a host of other immune-related adverse events uh, that can occur, including immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, a.k.a. ICANS, immune effector cell-associated hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis-like syndrome, other known, otherwise known as secondary HLH, prolonged cytopenia as an infection, as well as hypogammoglobinemia. But I would say in general from, I know that's a mouthful as well, but I know from an ICU standpoint, um, uh, CRS is definitely the one that we're definitely intervening the most on in these patients. So why is there such a variance in 
like you mentioned that it could be anywhere from mid 40% to mid 90%, right? So why is there such variation with presentation, timing? You mentioned like the grade threes and fours and severity with CRS. Like, is that related to just the immunotherapy in general or is this specific to the CAR T cell therapy? Yeah, and that's the tricky part with CAR T toxicity surveillance. You know, although we have a pretty good idea of when and how these immune-related adverse events, including cytokine release syndrome, will occur. It's not an exact science. You know, unlike, you know, our traditional chemotherapy-associated side effects, um, which can be nonspecific and cause permanent damage, you know, many CAR-T-mediated toxicities are on target and reverse when CAR-T cells are done expanding, eradicated, or exhausted. You know, when CAR-T cells are infused, they engage um, with their designated antigens on cancer cells, and this activation leads to this further proliferation of CAR-T cells and release of this massive amount of cytokines and chemokines, you know, which include like your IL-6, IL-2, IFN-gamma, GMCSF, from these antigen-directed T cells, which can cause this massive CRS pathway. Um, however, there are certain characteristics that can predict, you know, severe CRS so that we know which patients we're worried about, which ones we need to monitor more closely, which ones are likely going to make their way to the ICU. And these include patients who are at baseline, have higher tumor burden, have pharmacytopenia before their lymphodepletion, or they have lymphodepletion using specifically cyclophosphamide and fludarabine-based regimens, and also patients who have high baseline inflammatory uh, markers such as ferritin. So... You know, you mentioned that, um, especially even when they come into the ICU, a lot of a lot of what's happening is supportive care with some of those things. You're trying to bring the fever down if they're really hypotensive, obviously fluids, oppressors, if they need to, to bring blood pressure up. At what point, maybe you could start with what grade or, or however you want to describe it, but when do we... When do we start to get into our our MAB treatments? When do we when do we really get into the the hemong side of things? Is it when do they come to? Is it when they come to the ICU earlier, later? What's the kind of guidance from that perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's important to start with like, what is the grading of CRS so that we can kind of identify like what treatments are appropriate within those. Great point. And so, per at least. For at least the American Society of Transplantation and Cellular Therapy, or the ASTCT, the grading for CRS is grades one through four, and it's basically largely based on three different symptoms or signs. Grade one is fever is present. Grade two is that you have a fever and hypotension is present, but not requiring vasopressors and or you have hypoxia and you're requiring some oxygen supplementation with nasal cannula. Grade three, you have fever present, um, hypotension is also present, and you are requiring at least one vasopressor, and or you may have hypoxia requiring additional oxygen supplementation with things such as high flow nasal cannula or non-rebreather. And lastly, the most severe grade being grade four, you have fever present, you have hypotension present requiring multiple pressors, usually at least two to three pressors on top of vasopressin, and you have also can have hypoxia requiring positive pressure ventilation. Um, specifically at MD Anderson, we currently consider tocilizumab therapy when they've already met grade one, um, grade one, uh, cytokine release syndrome, if fever persists for at least three days, um, or for at least 24 hours in these high risk patients that had initial high tumor burden or high baseline inflammatory markers. But when we get to that grade two through four, um, this is when we definitely should be giving tocilizumab and it can be given actually up to every eight hours for up to three doses in a 24 hour period. 
So question about the, the uh, fever kind of diagnosis or requirement you said for 72 hours. Is that, do they need to be on antibiotics or is it just no matter what, if they have, obviously they're probably getting those started anyways, but if they, ha- is it just being febrile for 72 hours and that's it? Or is there any other criteria behind that? Yeah, and generally these patients are already going to be on broad-spectrum antibiotics um, given the fever, given the likely neutropenic, neutropenia as well. Um, but in general, like fever itself is a, is a criteria alone for a specific time period in, in our grading system. And when you um, mention tocilizumab specifically, um, I think, you know, is a... I'm familiar with a somewhat doing a fixed dose approach for other indications when we're using it for treatment in this perspective, should we be doing that or should we be going to that more traditional weight-based dosing? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually haven't thought about this in a while whenever I was looking it up. Uh, you know, we actually still use weight-based dosing. So the, the guidelines suggest this and we also use this, but it's an eight mg per keg dosing with a max of 800 milligrams for tocilizumab. Um, I know there's been some studies have looked at fixed dose versus weight-based dosing. I don't think there's truly a difference that's known yet. Um, but in general, all the standardized dosing schemes utilize weight-based dosing still. Yeah, that's, I like to, I like to point that out because it's different for, you know, I'm kind of used to seeing the difference. And like you said, that's what all the guidelines state. And it makes sense based on just how it works that you would probably, you don't want to shortchange it, right? You don't want to give low and then have to like, you know, just delay what potentially the inevitable. So the other thing that you mentioned talking about treatments is corticosteroids. Is there any detriment or interaction between the CAR T cells with corticosteroids? Thinking more probably in terms of reducing the efficacy of that T cell treatment. Yeah, it's definitely something that I, when I first moved to Indy Anderson had the thought of like, you know, what is the reason for giving steroids in these patients? Does it actually hurt our CAR T cell therapy? Because obviously we know steroids can be lympholytic and we know that we're giving these engineered T cells, which function as our lymph tissue, right? But I, I will say that after being there, I've learned that corticosteroids do play an important role in our uh, cytokine release syndrome management as well. As you can imagine, the use of steroids may alleviate certain CRS symptoms, but there's still a theoretical concern that you do at higher doses, you can suppress the CAR T cell expansion and persistence, which would in, in theory limit anti-tumor benefit from CAR T cells. But fortunately, this concern hasn't been supported um, by most studies, particularly with short courses of steroids, which we're typically doing with CRS. Um, our corticosteroid use is pretty on par with the guideline recommendations starting with grade two. We typically recommend dexamethasone starting at 4 to 10 milligrams IV times at least one dose or methylprednisolone equivalent. And typically in grade two, if you're reaching for a second dose of tocilizumab at this point, you should be thinking about a dose of steroids as well um, after no initial response. Um, and that's definitely reasonable. Once you hit grade three CRS, we're typically scheduling dexamethasone at usually 10 milligrams every six hours. However, if, if we're in a situation where, you know, you're on multiple pressors, you're, you know, hypoxic status, requiring intubation, um, within 24 hours of starting, the steroids will typically double them to at least 20 milligrams every six hours and thinking about other interventions as well, as we mentioned. Uh, however, once we hit the grade four, we typically are switching up to at least uh, pulse dose steroids with methylpred, um, usually at least a gram IV daily times three days, and then a, a longer taper with those patients. 
those are big boy steroid doses. Those are, those are no, those are no joke. Um, and I like that you pointed out too, that if symptoms persist, that tocilizumab dose is repeated. It's not a one time where you're assessing in 24, 48 hours. Correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, what I'm seeing is you can do max of three doses every eight hours times, times three. So you're repeating that if things don't get better, which is, um, something I like to highlight just because this is, this is just kind of different than we normally use it. At least, the those of us in in the non kind of hemonc ICU side. Yep, correct. You're correct about that. Up to three doses. Any other notable last line treatments to kind of briefly highlight? I think we kind of hit probably two of the of the main players. But if if maybe those don't work or you need alternative ideas for one thing or another, what are is there anything of note after those two? Yeah, there's a couple things to mention. I think sort of our last sort of mainstay of treatment that's kind of worked its way to the guidelines um, in the last two to three years is Anakinra, which is an IL-1 receptor antagonist. Uh, this was a new addition to at least the NCCN guidelines with the December 2023 update. And the rationale for targeting IL-1 specifically is based on evidence from two preclinical studies, both which demonstrated that IL-1 blockade protected against cytokine release syndrome in at least mouse models without impacting the anti-tumor effect of CAR T-cells. Now, currently, the guideline recommendation is based on limited data, but ongoing clinical trials will continue to help shed light on whether Anakinra is reasonable alternative to tocilizumab for CRS. So at, at Anderson, at least, we'll consider Anakinra in grades 2 to 4 cytokine release syndrome for those that are refractory to initial anti-IL-6 therapy or tocilizumab, as well as corticosteroids. For example, ongoing grade 2 to 4 CRS for at least 6 hours after initiation of steroids, and it's typically dosed um, 100 milligrams every 12 hours times 7 days. Obviously, some other options that come up are CRT as a last-line option to help clear additional inflammatory proteins, and other options that I won't get too far into the weeds on include things like rexolitinib, which is a JAK1-2 inhibitor, cyclophosphamide, IVIG, as well as uh, ATG or antithymocyte globulin. You know, there's also something that I recently learned about, which are the safety switches um, within specific CAR T-cell products. You know, safety switches are essentially inducible suicide genes that are encoded within the, the, the car product themselves that can be targeted and activated by specific medications. For instance, remedusid for caspase 9 or cetuximab or rituximab for EGFR. Um, and we would reserve these for use only when we need to eradicate the CAR T cells in the setting of severe refractory life-threatening CAR T cell mediated toxicities. So keep in mind, this does render your anti-tumor effect completely ineffective, um, but these are definitely reserved for those life-threatening toxicities where it does become um, necessary to use them. That may be the coolest drug feature that I have ever heard of. Um, it's like James Bond. That's the 007 in a medication, essentially. Wow, that's, and technology's unbelievable. That's, that's wild. Yeah, I mean it, it's definitely effective, but obviously you're 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 unfortunately getting rid of you know almost million dollars of products with with one medication. So you know it is it, it definitely does has it has it uh, its downsides, but obviously like death is definitely worth. Yeah, you're safe. Right? That's so. exactly right. What's going to kill immediately, and that's the only reason you would do that. Essentially, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. So let's let's move into kind of the other 
biggest or most notable side effect that you'll see if you're kind of going through some of the literature with this, um, which is immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, or ICANS. Quick aside, I love... They know how complicated their their words and acronyms are because there are such great acronyms throughout all of this. So, um, but when we're talking about like CRS and ICANS, is there a relationship at all? Is there like a mechanism that can explain why these things can occur simultaneously? Yeah, that's a good question, and they commonly do you know happen simultaneously. But I do want to first point out, at least for the listeners, that. ICANS, like you mentioned, immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, was previously known as CAR T-cell-related encephalopathy syndrome, or CREST, which is actually what I learned as first whenever it first came out, um, for those that might be unfamiliar. And the pathogenesis specifically of ICANS is less clear than cytokine release syndrome, but similar to cytokine release syndrome, ICANS typically does occur, occurs in situations in which uh, higher peak in vivo CAR T-cell numbers develop, whether that's from higher infused cell dose or higher pretreatment bone marrow disease burden or other factors that lead to greater in vivo T-cell expansion, such as fludarabine-containing preconditioning regimens. But I would say in general, more patients will have some degree of CRS after CAR T-cell infusion, um, up to 42 to 95%, compared to ICANs of any grade, which is somewhere between 10 to 65% when you look at all the landmark trials that allowed FDA approval of all the CAR-T products. But usually patients do develop ICANs, will have had CRS previously or concurrently. So most patients will develop CRS and and may or may not get ICANs, but if ICANs does occur, it's likely that they had or have ongoing CRS as well. CRS normally presents in the first week after CAR T-cell infusion, and ICANs usually within that 7- to 14-day window after CAR T-cell infusion, so a little bit later than CRS, obviously. And in ICANs, there's a theoretical similar start to CRS. You have pro-inflammatory cytokines by CAR T-cells that are generated in a tumor microenvironment. So you have IL-1, IL-6, IL-10, IFN gamma, and I could go on and on and on, but those are the mainstays of of cytokines, um, which then diffuse into the bloodstream and eventually can cause this disruption syndrome in the blood-brain barrier um, with accumulation of both cytokines as well as the CAR T-cells in the CNS, which contributes to this overall encephalopathy syndrome that you see. So if, like, because when I was looking into things, you know, I'd, I'd find some articles that said, you know, nervous system toxicity, for example. Are those just older, older articles or they're just using kind of an old or outdated term, essentially? Yeah, this is a, a more complex sort of thing because obviously nervous system toxicity is an umbrella term, right? Kind of similar to your immunosuppression when we talked about that. So the umbrella term encompasses multiple different things. Um, ICANS is a specific type of neurological toxicity that's marked by depressed level of consciousness, potential procedures, possible focal motor, focal motor uh, weakness in more severe cases, and potential for elevated uh, intracranial pressures, cerebral edema, and advanced cases. ICANS is also very specific to CAR T-cell toxicity as compared to the types of nervous system toxicities you can see with other types of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, But I will say, though, in the less severe types of toxicities, patients after CAR T-cell can also experience some less severe nervous system side effects such as headache, confusion, and dizziness, which can also play into the different types of nervous system toxicities you can see. I did also want to mention, though, that, you know, we're – we're most familiar probably with ICANS as far as an ICU requiring condition from a toxic, toxic standpoint. 
But there's another emerging nervous system toxicity that can also occur with CAR T cells. And this phenomenon is called Movement and Neurocognitive Treatment Emergent Adverse Events, or MNTs, another acronym for us, that can also occur in patients who have received anti-BCMA uh, CAR T cell therapy, uh, such as Carvicti or Abecma, um, one of the ones we use for, and these are the ones we use for multiple, multiple myeloma. Uh, these patients are at highest risk for developing MNTs if they have a higher tumor burden or high baseline inflammatory markers, have had grade 2 or higher CRS or I, any ICANs at any point, high CAR T cell expansion. And these MNTs are different from ICANs in that they occur actually months up to a year after CAR T cell therapy. So, you know, usually with CRS and ICANs, we're seeing these patients during their hospitalization for their CAR T cell infusion versus these MNTs, they may have already been discharged and coming back with new nerve symptoms. So a little bit different from a, you know, onset of events and also management of an event. Um, the condition can actually be described by movement disorders such as tremors, cogwheel rigidity, dyskinesia, can also affect personality changes and cognitive impairment, but also nerve changes such as difficulty swallowing, difficulty swallowing, double vision, as well as spatial droop can really encompass a, a wide variety of things. It's got to be challenging sometimes to, to truly narrow down which, which it is because you know, when you describe the, the wide range of symptoms that also mimic other common disease states, I'm guessing that kind of creates a little bit of a, of a challenge for the, for the treatment team. Yeah, I'll definitely say like we're still learning, right? So like a lot of our CAR T cell therapies were started and being starting to be infused in patients in you know the 2015 through 2020, 2015 through 2018. So now we're finally getting some you know longer term data that describes you know events that happen to patients over a year time frame. So I'm sure as more of that data comes out, we'll have more identification of what long term toxic effects we can have as well. And I like the way that you kind of described if you have CRS, it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to have ICANS. But if you have ICANS, it's likely that you had CRS. That's a, that's a good way. Yeah. That's going to stick. I like that. That's, I think that's going to help the listeners too. This episode of Pharmacy Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. That's C-H-I-E-S-I dot You know, talking about these can occur at the same time, potentially from the same treatment, right? So um, CRS has its own kind of grading scale does ICANS have a similar one? Do they have similar presentations or, or are they kind of completely different mechanistic or um, in terms of like the monitoring, grading, treatment, et cetera? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Obviously, both CRS and ICANS both have grades, grades one through four, but how we look at those grades is a little bit different. It's important to keep in mind that CAR T cell therapy is a cellular therapy uh, given once and these toxicities are expected to develop. Um, but for this reason, any hospital with CAR-T program should be welcome for monitoring, diagnosing, and treating ADEs um, that arise, both on the floor as well as in the ICU. Something different, though, from cytokine release syndrome is that we that um, with ICANS, as we monitor an ICE score, which is an immune effector cell encephalopathy score. The score encompasses about five different domains, which look at orientation, naming, following commands, writing, and attention, uh, with the score ranging from zero to nine. 
the higher the score, the less the encephalopathy. Uh, grading of ICANS is based on the ICE, ICE score, but also level of consciousness, seizures, seizure findings, motor findings, as well as findings of elevated ICP or cerebral edema. Uh, patients are typically monitored on the floor in grades one to two ICANS which corresponds to an ICE score of anywhere between three and nine. Uh, and patients will come to the ICU once they hit grade three, which is usually hallmarked by some seizure event, plus an ICE score usually ranging from zero to two. And then grade four would, would be marked by a more prolonged seizure event. So seizures lasting longer than five minutes, unarousable status, diffuse cerebral um, edema on imaging, or deep focal motor weakness. Unlike uh, cytokine release syndrome, though, steroids typically are our mainstay of therapy here. Um, we're typically starting dexamethasone or methylprednisolone equivalent in grade one. And typically the reason for dexamethasone is just that difference in blood-brain barrier penetration with dexamethasone. Uh, however, if concurrent cytokine release syndrome is happening, we'll also start tocilizumab with similar dosing to how we described previously. Um, from grades two to four, we'll also consider anakinra in these patients who are steroid refractory, which is actually a little bit of a slight deviation from the guidelines. The decision to include anakinra uh, for treatment in grade two as opposed to grade three, which is how it is in the guidelines, is actually based on our own internal data from an ongoing study that shows a reduction in length and severity of ICANs. It's expected that the ASTCT will actually incorporate these in the guidelines once they're published. Um, but once we're in grade three, we will double our steroid dosing uh, once encephalopathy is not improving for at least 24 hours. I should also mention um, that a recent phase one study published in uh, ASH by ASH last year also looked at the prophylactic use of anakinra to mit mitigate ICANs and B-cell lymphoma patients who got uh, YESCARDA. It's a little bit different, right? So prophylactic meaning like they started it even before they got the cells compared to getting it grade two, grade three, uh, which is what we're currently doing. So in this prophylactic study, 20 patients received anakinra 100 milligrams daily or 100 milligrams twice daily times seven days starting six hours before the CAR T-cell infusion. And they spe specifically looked at safety and tolerability of anakinra after infusion, um, looking at CRS as well as ICANS rates. CRS was observed in any grade up to 95% in patients, um, but grade three and four only 5%, while ICANS was observed up to 35%, um, but three in, grades three and four and 20% 20 20 of them. Uh, they demonstrated that prophylactic anakinra can be safely administered in these large B-cell lymphoma patients. Um, with the escarta, but they had no apparent difference in incidence, grade, or duration of CRS or ICANS. So despite this being, you know, a small sample size, anakinra does show a favorable si uh, safety profile while maintaining the efficacy of escarta cells to a similar um, level of Zuma, the Zuma-1 trial. I think further larger studies are warranted to confirm the ability to prophylax with anakinra to mitigate ICANS, um, but this study doesn't show that we should be doing it prophylactically, uh, maybe in the future with larger trials, but for now, uh, we're limiting it specifically to grade two at MD Anderson for the guidelines starting at grade three. It makes sense that you, you know, unfortunately, right, you definitely, if it showed evidence of some benefit, you would use it. But in the era of drug shortages, right, you can't just be giving it out when there's people that could be truly experiencing them and actually may need, you know, the treatment. And then there's there's none left. They may get cost, all those things. That makes complete sense. Um, yeah, not to mention drug costs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so not only, you know, you mentioned that the, you know, 
the, the grade three can be classified by having a seizure when they come into the ICU or even afterwards they're getting seizure prophylaxis. So say they come in and, and are in, you know, status epilepticus, for example, or even they just have multiple seizures. Like, are you treating those, are you truly treating those seizures with anti-epileptic drugs? Or is this more like alcohol withdrawal where that's a symptom of something different and you need to get the tocilizumab, get the steroids, maybe Anakin, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, right? So with seizure or status epilepticus events in the post-CAR-T cell infusion period, as well as patients who develop cerebral edema or ICP elevations, typically we're treating them based on local institution practices uh, as guidelines don't give specific recommendations outside of the seizure prophylaxis for 30 days post the um, CAR T cell infusion. I'd say in general though, um, yes, we will treat the disease state, but also focus on fixing the etiologies via the, via using steroids, anakinra, tocilizumab, et cetera. Um, But generally we'll follow the typical status epilepticus pathway. Um, However, starting with Keppraz or, uh, MD Anderson starting with Keppra as our first, second-line agent yeah. after our abortive therapy with benzodiazepine. Although some centers I have heard um, are starting with alproic acid or phenytoin based on their practice um, as a second-line agent, I should say. I'll also note that starting in grade grade one ICANs, we're routinely obtaining EEG um, as well as a neurology consult in order to rule out our non-convulsive status epilepticus events. There's a recent actual retrospective study that was published in Blood Cancer Journal in 2022 that looked at patients who received Yescarta. And of the 33 patients reviewed, 13 of those had video uh, EEG. And all 12 out of uh, 12 out of 13 patients had abnormal EEG findings, with the majority finding non-convulsive status epilepticus. It's suspected, obviously, that the actual rate of non-convulsive status is likely underreported due to difficulties in the diagnosis and identification. But as many listeners are probably well aware, the diagnosis of non-convulsive status is definitely challenging. EEG is required to establish this diagnosis um, because encephalopathic symptoms like coma or mental confusion in critically ill patients doesn't by themselves distinguish patients with non-convulsive status from those without. And for this very reason, we start monitoring EEG super early in the, the ICANN's trajectory. So you had mentioned earlier um, HLH as an adverse event. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it after you smashed a grand slam with that. But any other lesser known adverse effects that you want to give some love to or things that that we might see, you know, come to the, that, you know, they might experience these come to our ICU? Yeah, really the only one I wanted to touch on was was really secondary HLH like you talked about because there is some a little bit on treatment for it specifically, if you don't mind me talking about it. Um, but similar to classical HLH, um, which we've all probably seen at least once in the ICU, the ASTCT guidelines actually recently published guidance on diagnosing and treating this phenomenon in a paper this past July. Um, accordingly, it's hypothesized that immune effector cells like CAR-T cells can become activated by tumor antigens, but also subsequently uh, transactivate macrophages, which we know are implicated in the HLH pathway, and lead to concurrent uh, CAR-T and macrophage activation and cytokine release. Um, The new grading scale encompasses clinical parameters such as fever, hypotension, and hypoxia, similar to our cytokine release syndrome grading, but it's noted for being clinically independent from CRS as compared to ICANS, where we know that CRS usually happens before ICANS, um, HLH is usually clinically independent from CRS. 
diagnosis is based on the features of macrophase activation, known recent immunofactor cell therapy, known hyperfibrinogenemia. Therapy is consistent usually of anakinra plus or minus steroids. Uh, we can also use ruxolitinib with etoposide and also imipalumab as uh, our last line options as well. So we've been focusing our discussion on CAR T-cell therapy and its specific adverse events kind of so up to this point. Let's kind of shift gears a little bit into what I think is another much uh, another class that is becoming, the use is becoming more common. Adverse events from them are also secondary to that becoming more common. So um, thinking specifically of our immune checkpoint inhibitors, how is, how is the mechanism of, of this specific class different from our CAR T-cell therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it definitely comes up a lot. I think that something to keep in mind is that the overall goal effect is the same, which is immunomodulation to help our immune system fight off these bad cancer cells. But how we do it is a little bit different. Um, as, as many are probably aware, immune checkpoints are cell surface proteins expressed on T cells and can generally have enhanced stimulatory or inhibitory signals after identification of appropriate ligands. You know, cancer cells have masking protein receptors that can actually trick our T cells into leaving them alone. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are typically these monoclonal antibodies that work, you know, for the most part at PD-1, PD-L1, or CTLA-4 by neutralizing these masking protein receptors. They block these checkpoint proteins from binding to the partner proteins and prevent the off signal from being sent, um, allowing for these T cells to continue killing cancer cells without having uh, turning them off. I'll say on the flip side, though, each CAR T cell is engineered to target a specific kind of cancer antigen expressed on tumor cells and not healthy cells. And once they're targeted, the CAR T cells can multiply and signal other parts of the immune system to come to the site of tumor killing as well. So in general, like I said, immunomodulation is overall the same between the two agents, but how they get there, uh, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors make this happen indirectly as compared to CAR T cells, which are able to directly cause this anti-tumoral effect. So obviously ramping up our T cells and immune system is going to cause some problems, but do we see the same adverse events like cytokine release syndrome or ICANs like we do from CAR T cell treatment? Yeah. As with anything good, there's always a catch, right? <laughs> and yes, although we, we avoid classical toxicity seen with traditional care chemotherapy, um, we still have immune-related adverse events um, that occur with immune checkpoint inhibitors um, as a cause of ramping up our own immune system. Immune checkpoint inhibitors essentially allow us to take the breaks off the immune system, um, which helps wake up our immune system uh, to fight cancer cells. You know, but it also interferes with homeostasis, which can lead to off-target uh, toxicities that uh, we commonly see, both you know in the general wards of the hospital, but also when they get more severe in the ICU. And these classes of medications include our CTLA-4 and PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Um, and just in general, these two different receptors, CTLA-4, PD-1, have very different roles in immune regulation. CTLA-4-mediated immune checkpoint is involved in antigen present presentation phase prior to T cells being even exposed to an antigen or targeted toward a particular tissue. Medications like ipilimumab, also known as Yervoid, 
um, are your types of CTLA-4 uh, inhibitors. And they prevent T cells from binding with their partner proteins that may prevent them from doing their job of attacking cancer cells. It functions as a signal dampener to maintain a consistent level of T cell activation. And more specifically, these CTLA-4 inhibitors reduce the activation of native Na uh, native naive T cells and may also interfere with ongoing stimulation of T cells and inflamed tissues. So by inhibiting CTLA-4 with our monoclonal antibodies, we actually allow for amplification of T cells prior to antigen targeting, and hence why this class, as compared to PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors, um, has more potential for toxicity. I'll say on the flip side, though, PD-1 uh, regulates inflammatory responses in the tissues, and hence why activated T cells will upregulate PD-1 um, through inflammation. Examples of these medications uh, that target PD-1 include nivolumab or Optivo, uh, and also pembrolizumab, also known as Keytruda. I will say, although we don't get CRS or ICANs with immune checkpoint inhibitors, we do get toxicities that affect uh, primarily the skin, the GI system, the lungs, liver, uh, the CNS, specifically the pituitary gland, among a few others. I love that you said it just primarily affects, and then I think you named every organ system like you were a pharmacy student presenting right. on their, <laughs> their first patient. But, yeah. but like when you look at it, it literally does describe all of those. So is, are you, when they come into the ICU with the adverse event from the, these immune checkpoint inhibitors, is it obvious as to the organ system that's involved or is it your you have eight people doing a workup of every organ system that could cause problems. And a lot of them being, like you said, inflammation, right? A lot of them being itis issues um, affecting almost everything. Yeah. I think this is definitely a tricky part. And when be being a clinician at the bedside becomes challenging because there's a lot of things to consider in these patients. I think for me working at a place like MD Anderson where all of our patients have cancer, it's always in our differential diagnosis, but I can see definitely when you're not working at a cancer hospital, how, how challenging it might be to identify this as the primary culprit. Um, additionally, I'll say we have some tools that can help us zero in on identifying whether the presenting organ system failure is related to immune checkpoint inhibitor exposure. We have a general idea of the time course from exposure to likelihood of toxicity that we can easily backtrack in our system to be able to tell when a patient had received their last immune checkpoint inhibitors to forward track to see is this within the time frame for this specific toxicity for them to develop this type of toxicity. Say, for example, the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, the time of onset of specifically pneumonitis is much more delayed than a lot of the other organ toxicities with some grade of pneumonitis expected within three to four months, but sometimes extending almost up to nine to ten months since the last exposure. Your differential diagnosis is usually something like pneumonia, pleural effusion, pulmonary edema, worsening metastatic disease. Uh, and maybe pneumonitis, but, you know, if, if they have a history of immune checkpoint inhibitor administration, it should definitely be on your differential. So I think, obviously, this, this is where a detailed patient history and diagnostics come into play and can make a huge difference in diagnosing and treatment, as they are very different, right? You know, if we're thinking it's a pneumonia, we're thinking antimicrobials, we're thinking pneumonitis, then we're thinking more steroids. So obviously, our treatments are vastly different and very important being able to identify what your etiology is coming from. I think for this reason, though, that's why a lot of times when patients are started on immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, their baseline is documented from a symptom standpoint. So, for instance, like someone started on nivolumab or pembrolizumab um, who have baseline 
pulmonary issues, their baseline oxygen use is documented, whether they use an inhaler is documented, and they're also given a six-minute walk test to see where they're at at baseline before they're exposed to uh, any of these immune checkpoint inhibitors. And all these are crucial in knowing whether these new symptoms are a change from baseline, and patients are actually educated as well at baseline um, to know whether they're having any changes from their baseline pulmonary symptoms and to explicitly let anyone know and report any changes that they notice. Again, this is just one example of pneumonitis, uh, of using pneumonitis, but this is, the same could be true for other types of toxicities that are mo the most common, such as cutaneous or skin, uh, GI system, liver, as well as CNS and pituitary. I mean, what you're describing is why this is so challenging. The fact that that literally needs to be in your differential months and months. And I know in your, because it you, you see and treat these patients so much, it is, I'm just telling you, it, I don't know if that's necessarily the case in hospitals that don't do this. You know, our sister hospital does, so we'll get some of these coming in. So we're a little, but I'm thinking, right, if you're not, and even if you, you know, I think sometimes you, you get the history and that's where knowing what some of the things do matter. Cause some people just see a map, right. Or something. And it's like, oh, we can hold that or whatnot and that kind of thing. So that's a really, that's a really good point. Also probably highlights why this care is so challenging when um with these patients i even catch myself sometimes having worked there you know almost two years now thinking like not thinking about immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicity when they come in with these different organ failures and now i'm trying to get trained into a point where i'm always thinking about them but you know i, I definitely get it from not working at md anderson how difficult it can be to to identify and diagnose these as well so I have to ask because in one of the guidelines, as we're looking at these um, at these toxicities, it says um, to quote um, to minimize the occurrence of steroid-induced adverse events, the lowest effective corticosteroid dose should be prescribed for the shortest possible duration. So, translate that, Matt, into what that means in the Hemonk world. Is that a that feels like a guidance? <laughs> a suggestion. Yeah, definitely a guidance. I would say like short is a stretch because it's usually a, a longer period of time that they're on steroids. Um, but I will say each toxicity like ICANS and CRS has a grade. It's usually grades one to four, but generally these treatments are recommend. Usually the treatment is recommended to hold the current immunotherapy and give steroids to mitigate some of the negative toxicities from the immune checkpoint inhibitor. They generally, once symptoms start, for instance, shortness of breath with pneumonitis, we are holding immunotherapy and we're starting outpatient prednisone, for instance, uh, or equivalent doses of at least one meg per kick per day. So it's not small doses by any means. And tapering over at least four weeks once resolved. So once they get down to grade one symptoms, they're still tapering it over a month almost at that point. Um, and with more severe symptoms that require hospitalization, you'll see even higher doses of methylprednisolone up to two mg per kick per day. Again, tapered over four weeks once they go down all the way to grade one symptoms. So it's definitely a prolonged period of time, but I think that guidance of lowest steroid for the lowest amount of time is just trying to keep you from them being on it for eight, you know, months and months and months, but trying to have an idea of having a taper in mind or having an end, end goal in mind, I think is what's important. So yes, even though there are, these are our starting doses. Therapy can be tailored to symptoms, and given their already heightened risk for infection, hyperglycemic, adverse drug events, uh, we, especially as pharmacists, try to wean steroids as much as possible to 
to meet um, patient symptoms. So it's not at the antibiotics in like the neutropenic level. It's a step or two below that, but definitely we're, we're not at the ground level. That's a good, thank you for translating. Um, I appreciate that. Now we have, we've talked about kind of two of, I'd say more of the commonly used treatments, CAR T cell therapy, immune checkpoint inhibitors, any honorable mention, you know, you in the beginning talking about immunotherapy, you definitely rattled off uh, multiple classes. Are there any other honorable mentions that you kind of want to briefly shout out? Yeah, that's a good thought as well. I think there's uh, two other medications that uh, I'm at least commonly seeing in the ICU uh, causing toxicity and toxic syndromes similar to CRS and ICANS. Um, and these are uh, medications in the class called lymphocyte engager-related toxicities. Uh, and there's two that are the most commonly currently and that and or at least two that I'm, I'm seeing the most common. Um, and that includes lenitumumab, which is a CD19, CD3, bi-specific T-cell receptor-engaging antibody, also known as BITES, another acronym for you, and teclistamab. Lenitumumab specifically is designed to link CD19-positive B-cells with CD3-positive T-cells, which result in a cytotoxic T-cell response. And the rate of CRS and ICANS is lower with lenitumumab compared to CAR T-cell therapy, but the gradient treatment um, is very similar to, to those. And then on the, on the flip side, teclistamab is another um, medication we're commonly seeing with multiple myeloma. It's also a bispecific antibody that directs CD3-positive T-cells to B-cell maturation antigen, or BCMA, which is similar to the type of CAR T-cell that we use for multiple myeloma patients. And the rate, or any, rate of any grade of CRS is about the same as compared to CAR T-cell therapy, but lower grade three or four, um, which typically is what we would require for ICU admission. Again, grading and treatment are pretty similar to CRS and ICANS, but vary a little bit differently. So when patients experience adverse events on these agents, do they ever get re-challenged in a sense? Because we're obviously treating cancer. So when does the potential benefit of that treatment outweigh the risk of these, of these adverse effects? Good question. I, I think it definitely comes up a lot. You know, working in the ICU, we really only see these patients when they failed therapy or when they've had these adverse reactions and need to be considered for rechallenge or permanently discontinuing. So these are the types of patients we typically run into the most. Um, I think it obviously comes up all the time dealing with the toxicities, though. In general, anyone who is grade two or below is rechallenged once asymptomatic again. However, once they reach typically grade three or four toxicities. So for pneumonitis, this would be things such as life-threatening, respiratory compromise, need for intubation. The guidance would generally say to permanently avoid these agents in the future. However, we can re-challenge patients who have previously had grade three or four ICI-related toxicities, but then again, that's specific to organ system affected. So um, for instance, myocarditis and pneumonitis-related toxic syndromes that have reached grade four toxicities, the recommendation in general is just to not try to recontinue them at all. It just recommends permanent discontinuation to prevent them from having those adverse events from happening again. Most organ systems affected by grades one to three toxicities can usually be rechallenged once symptoms are back to at least grade one symptoms or less. I will say that uh, patients that are rechallenged, one out of every three may have recurrence of the exact same immune-related adverse event. Um, so they may be in the 
in the same situation that they were before after they restart their challenge again. And at, at this point, if they reoccur their, their uh, toxic syndrome, it's recommended, obviously, that they have to permanently discontinue that immune checkpoint inhibitor from future use. So we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, not only, you know, how these agents work, um, their indications, but then some of their adverse events and how we manage those. So recognition, prompt treatment, supportive care, all things that you kind of highlighted throughout the talk today, um, obviously feels like critical care pharmacists and just pharmacists in general could have a huge role with some of those things. So highlight, highlight things that from a pharmacist perspective, we could be all over in terms of helping for these patients. Yeah, for sure. I think we definitely play a crucial role in ensuring appropriate monitoring and treatments that are in place when patients um, hit the ICU through a variety of different mechanisms. Um, I think the number one thing is we bridge a lot of the gaps in communication on toxicities between teams. So between the pharmacy standpoint, the ICU standpoint, the primary oncology standpoint, especially when there are changes in things like ICE score escalations and ICANS patients. As these escalations occur, patients may qualify for treatments that they previously didn't, and these are time-sensitive um, therapies that need to be in place um, as soon as possible. So those communication gaps are definitely bridged by um, us being bedside, but also communicating with the treatment teams. I think clarifying scores that are being documented correctly and daily every day is super important. You know, even working at a center that's a cancer center that sees CAR-T every day, we still struggle with correct and um, uh, correct scoring and accurate scoring, especially with I scores. Um, and that's making sure that we're looking at the I scores. We're talking to the nurse at the bedside, making sure that they're documented appropriately and every day. Um, as again, these are also important for identifying optimal therapies that patients may qualify for. I think we also help with ensuring patients are on appropriate prophylactic medications once you have escalations of grades, um, specifically with ICANs, when you move from grade two to grade three or four, they should be moving from general fungal coverage to mold coverage, actually. So that's something that commonly we're having to deal with in ICU, right, because they don't come to us till grade three, grade four. So we're usually helping with that transition, usually from fluconazole to posiconazole and working with the, the treatment teams in that. Um, additionally, not letting any of the other prophylactic medications slip as well, such as our HSV prophylaxis or PCP prophylaxis drop off, as these are both recommended to be on for at least a year after post-CAR-T cell infusion. So commonly, these patients will go home after CAR-T cell therapy, but if they get readmitted, we need to make sure these medications are still on board if they're back in the ICU. Um, and then also AED prophylaxis. They need that for at least 30 days post-CAR T cell infusion, so ensuring that that's not falling off and that's staying on the MAR as well. I think something that comes up commonly is, you know, other infectious etiologies that happen concurrently because, you know, CRS is happening, has a lot of similar features as sepsis and other infections. So our job is helping you know, with differential diagnosis and considering these zebras and unexpected circumstances when trying to rule in or rule out infectious complications. And these are things limited, not limited to, but include HHV6 uh, virus, co-infections, CMV, strong geloides, West Nile virus, all those things are encompassed and, and definitely are helpful with ID consult as well. I think the last one that's also important that should always have a pharmacist on it is being involved in local and institutional algorithms and guidelines for managing toxicities associated with CAR T cells and immune checkpoint inhibitors. You know, we're 
we're definitely involved uh, with this at the MD Anderson level, and we're help we're helping with this with you know reviewing the data, reviewing the literature to make sure that we're including the most appropriate and up to date evidence based practices with our guidelines. Wow, what great highlights! A lot, and you even there. There's even so many things you mentioned that I wouldn't have even thought of. So what a yeah, that's a must listen. Um, now. What are some of the biggest take-home points when you think about immunotherapy, some of the things you want the audience to remember? What are what are some of the biggest kind of summary or conclusion points when we're kind of wrapping up our, our immunotherapy discussion today? Yeah, so a couple different points. I think to start, I think to remember that CAR-T cell therapy and immunotherapy in general is here to stay. If you haven't had to deal with it yet, you definitely will. So it's important to become more familiar with the agents and the toxidromes that they can cause as um, they'll continue to grow in expansion and, and grow in the indications and the types of cancers we can use them for. And the number of patients that will be hitting the ICUs in the coming years. I think also in general, we talked about that can release syndrome and we should know that it's an expected toxicity from CAR T cell infusion. And with this, integrated systems for monitoring and treatment um, for these patients are crucial to promote safety and better outcomes for them. And in general, tocilizumab is your mainstay of treatment for cytokine release syndrome. Uh, ICANS is another syndrome we talked about today. Um, it's an almost expected toxicity if cytokine release syndrome is or has occurred in our CAR T cell patients. Again, it's very important to have an integrated system in place for monitoring and treatment, treating these patients. And we know that steroids, tocilizumab, and potentially anakinra as well are your main phase of treatment for this. Immune-related adverse events from uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors can affect any organ system as we identified, but particularly skin, GI tract, and lungs, as they can occur at almost any time during or after treatment. And with this, it's important to know that the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors will also continue to expand more indications which means more ICU patients eventually meeting that grade three, grade four requirement. And the best way to mitigate their ICU stay is early recognition, identification, and management of their immune-related adverse events by the healthcare team. And the last thing I'll leave us with is, you know, overall care for these patients receiving any type of immunotherapy is complex. We've kind of identified that today, right? Uh, and it requires many healthcare team members to perform their duties. And this is not limited to, but include physicians, advanced practice providers, nurse coordinators, nurse educators, apheresis nursing, inpatient and outpatient nursing, cellular therapy technologists, case management, social workers, oncology pharmacists, critical care pharmacists, and so many more. So you can just tell there's so many, there's a huge web of people involved in patient care specific, specifically related to immunotherapy and the toxicities associated with them. All members really play an integral role in providing education to one another, but also in the constant and open communication when taking care of these patients who end up developing these toxicities. Well, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. This is something that, you know, even if you're not a center that does this, you're going to have patients coming to your, for, for one reason or another that have received these that might have adverse events. So, um, appreciate you coming on, re-highlighting kind of where we are and what we know now. And that's another thing that you kind of highlighted throughout is this is evolving. And so something could come out in a week that, you know, who knows what that could change, right? So it's an ever evolving world, but you know, what we know now, a lot of highlights here, a lot of good stuff. Um, so Matt, we love that. But I think a, a lot of the reason that some people are still listening right now is the return of Mattress Mac. So we got to hear your experience with, with this 
gentleman with the mattresses. Let the listeners know what, what happened. Yeah, so for those not familiar, Mattress Mac is a, a, a guy who owns Gallery Furniture in Houston, and he constantly is having deals on mattresses. So if you if you need a mattress in Houston, you're either going to get a great deal or you're going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> so, you know, back in 2021, I think I was in need of a mattress, and he had one of his specials going on, which is usually around sporting events. Um, but I think it was the national football title that Alabama was in, and Alabama was doing super good that year and were expected to win. And I think I had placed a, placed a bet basically saying that if you buy this mattress outright and Alabama wins, you get all of your money back. But if they don't win, then we just keep your money. So unfortunately Alabama did not win Ugh. and I paid a full price for that mattress. <laughs> that is, so are you, did you just, pick Alabama because you were thinking with your wallet or are you like an Alabama? Like, do you have ties to rooting? Are you like a roll tie guy at heart? I'm not even an Alabama fan. No, it was just all based on money to be honest. And I knew that they had been doing super well. So I, you know, you know, like all of his deals, there's different odds of winning. And that to me, after hearing several of them over the years, seemed like the safest bet to get my money yeah. back, you know, compared to, to, compared to the World Series ones he has or the Super Bowl ones he has, that definitely seemed like the game to put your money on. <laughs> yeah, we Matt Wana came on and talked about how he was an Astros fan and they made a huge, a huge bet and they lost to the Nationals when I lived in D.C. That was the first iteration of this. So I'm sorry, definitely pull, pulling for you in the future. If you ever, if you ever, I mean, it's the ultimate roll of the dice. I kind of love it. I'm not going to lie. Like it's, so if that ever happens again, you'll have to keep us updated. Um, but Matt, thanks again. This was awesome. Um, talk about learning updates in a disease that's going to be more common, but that I think a lot of us are pretty unfamiliar with. This was awesome. So, uh, appreciate you, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Matt. Uh, remember, reach out to him on Twitter at MGM485. Uh, the reference list is in that episode description as well as the website, pharmacy2dose.com. Remember, check out on social media for trial of the day videos and so much more at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, Twitter, X, Instagram, TikTok, all the things. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only, does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.